All right. Well, I think you'll all enjoy this afternoon's uh, program. We have uh, three very dynamic speakers who are going to talk to us about a number of important issues, and we're going to start off the afternoon uh, with Dr. Susan Bookbinder from uh, UC San Francisco and the San Francisco Department of Public Health, who will be talking to us about benefits of PrEP. Susan, come on up. Welcome to LA. <laughs> Thanks so much. I think probably my commute was probably faster than some of yours. Um, so I'm going to be talking about how to maximize benefits from pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, these are my disclosures. And what I'm going to be doing is, what you'll be learning about is uh, some information about the U.S. epidemic, and I've got a few uh, LA-specific slides about um, the epidemiology. And then we'll talk some about um, differences in PrEP effectiveness in different populations and some counseling strategies. And the way I've divided this is into sort of five sections. So first of all, in thinking about who needs PrEP most, we need to know who's becoming newly infected um, right now in the United States. Um, we'll talk about these population differences and some counseling considerations. What do you do with serodiscordant couples um, So and the role of condoms, some safety issues, and uh, initiating, anti uh, initiating PrEP, and then population-level impact. So how well are we doing right now in terms of getting PrEP out to the, the people who need it? So starting with the epidemiology, um, these are the number of new diagnoses in um, the United States from 2010 to 2014. The number of new infections, and this is the absolute number of new diagnoses, is going down in women. Uh, it's about 19% of the total. Overall, the number's been relatively stable in men. Uh, it's now 81% of the total. So there's like a four to one ratio between men and women, although it differs in different parts of the country. Um, and these are the risk factors in, for the men on the left and for the women, I don't know if this, no, I guess that doesn't show. Um, we'll see if, for the men on the left and the women on the right. And 86% um, of the men have sex with men, a small proportion of whom also inject drugs, and 86% of the women are likely to have become infected through sex with men. So um, sexual transmission accounts for the majority of new infections, uh, but not certainly exclusively all of the new infections. And this year at CROI, there was some um, data that was celebrated because we had been at 50,000 infections a year or 50,000 new diagnoses a year in the United States for so many years. And um, CDC announced that there had been a decline of 18% of in new diagnoses from the years 2008 to 2014, which is great, but it's certainly not good enough. It's not getting us down to the levels where we need to be. Um, where we're seeing the biggest declines really are in people who inject drugs, and that's great because we do have ways of uh, really easily uh, preventing transmission through injection drugs, and that's providing clean equipment for people to inject with, other kinds of safe injection and harm reduction strategies. 36% decline in heterosexuals, and that is manifest in part by the um, decline in women. And we have seen declines in some populations of men who have sex with men. So in the 35 to 44 year age group, 26% uh, decline, 18% in the youngest age group, and in certain geographic regions. So in Washington, D.C. and in a number of states, we've seen substantial declines in new infections. 
But where we're not seeing declines are in um, men who have sex with men in the age groups of 25 to 34, where you can see that that number of new infections is, is rising. And what we see is a decrease in number of new infections in men who have sex with men who are white, but we're not seeing those numbers decline in African Americans, and we're actually seeing an increase in new diagnoses in Latino men who have sex with men. So we still have uh, a predominance of men who have sex with men accounting for the number of new infections um, and racial and ethnic disparities. What I do want to point out is that there are also some age-related issues that we need to grapple with. So the 25 to 34-year-olds make up the largest number of new diagnoses. Um, but if you look at over the age of 45, that accounts for a quarter of our new infections. So when we're thinking about to whom do we provide PrEP and who do we ask about sexual practices and who do we ask about, um, about risk, we do need to remember to ask our older as well as our younger patients. And these are some data, I just have a few slides about the local epidemic here in um, Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles has, uh, it's 87%, uh, I believe, of the new diagnoses are in men. So again, just like throughout the West Coast, it's a predominantly male epidemic. There's a more mixed epidemic on the East Coast. Um, there has been a decline um, from 2010 to 2013, there was an 16% uh, decline. So, in six years, in, in three years, you've achieved in Los Angeles um, County what was achieved nationally in six years. So that's great. You're declining at a faster rate than what we're seeing nationally. But we do want to see an even greater decline. And the green line is the number of, um, I'm sorry, the blue line are the number of um, new diagnoses. No, that's not tracking on there. The blue line are the number of new diagnoses um, that are going down. And you can see that as the deaths decline, but and the number of new diagnoses uh, decline. We still have more new diagnoses than deaths, and so the prevalence increases. And you're at almost 50,000 people living with HIV um, in uh, in Los Angeles. If we look at it by age, um, what we see is that these are the the men in their 20s and the men in their 30s. The numbers are going down, but those are the the ones that account for the largest number. Whereas um, for women, you're seeing everywhere from 20s to up to in their 50s. And so, and that's what we also see nationally is that we're not very good at identifying women who are at risk of infection. They're getting diagnosed oftentimes later, and it, it's across a, a spectrum of age. When we do look at um, men and women in LA County by race, ethnicity, the green line are African Americans. And so you can see these substantial uh, racial and ethnic disparities by 100,000 population. So while the largest number of new diagnoses in LA County are in Latinos, where there's also um, this purple line, which is kind of, uh, you can't see very well, um, are Latinos, that's still a higher rate per 100,000 population than, than the white population, but um, African Americans are really at substantially greater risk um, for the size of the population, and that's true for men and women. So we need to get PrEP to all of our at-risk populations. We need to pay particular attention to racial and ethnic disparities. Now, one of the questions that's arisen is, does PrEP work equally well in different populations? And so we're going to start with our first um, audience response question, which is, how do you recommend PrEP be taken? And I'm going to just read through the answers, and then you can vote. One is that you recommend daily PrEP for both men and women. Two is that you recommend 
um, less than daily dosing for men, but women need to take it every day. The third is that you recommend PrEP be taken pericoidally before and after sex, but only for men. The fourth is that you recommend pericoidal PrEP for men and women. Or the fifth is I don't recommend PrEP for anyone. So if you can keep those ideas in mind, uh, keep those, the, that list in mind, here is the time to vote. I'm waiting for my music. I, I asked for some Tina Turner. I thought we needed to get things revved up a little bit. I guess I was thinking we might have what's love got to do with it, right? So, um, and that's what, yeah. So, um, so daily prep for both men and women, which is actually what I also recommend with some caveats. And so we'll talk about that in a moment. These are the data on um, prevention options, and you can't see this. Well, what you can see is that everything above the red line shows um, significant efficacy, and most of those are tenofovir-based regimens of uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. We do have one vaccine trial that's been pre uh, protective uh, in a small, you know, 31% uh, efficacy, but we're working on making that better. Um, but and we've got some vaginal rings that have proven to be efficacious in Africa, and we're, we're going to be getting more data there. But most of the regimens are tenofovir-based oral regimens. And uh, you can see that there are two studies with 86% reductions in new infections in tenofovir-based regimens in men who have sex with men, the PROUD study and the Ipergase study, and then a 75% reduction uh, with tenofovir FTC in heterosexual serodiscordant couples in Africa. So we can achieve very high levels of protection using these tenofovir-based regimens. But there's been this wide spectrum of effectiveness across these various trials. And the question is, what accounts for that? And clearly, one of the things that accounts for that, and again, uh, unfortunately, these don't project very well, but as you go to the right, you have a larger proportion of the population of participants in these studies that have detectable drug. And obviously, if you don't take the pill, it can't pr protect you, right? So where you've got low levels of people actually taking the pills, the effectiveness is lower. And where you have higher levels, the effectiveness is higher. But it looks like it may not only be that. And so here are the studies for men who have sex with men, and you can see that that seems to follow along this curve of higher levels of detection, higher levels of efficacy. Um, heterosexual serodiscordant couples and uh, uh, another study of heterosexuals, also high levels of efficacy. Where we've seen lower levels of efficacy are in women. And the question is, is it just that these women were less likely to take the pills or to use the gel, or is there something else going on? So I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but I'm going to start by telling you what do we know about how effective PrEP is for men who have sex with men. And what we know is the Effectiveness is excellent, but it's probably not 100%. And so there's data that were published last year from Kaiser Northern California with over a thousand or almost a thousand uh, patients, almost all men, who were given daily um, tenofovir FTC. Uh, they were clearly having a lot of exposures uh, sexually. There were 42% who were diagnosed with sexually transmitted infections, but there were no new HIV infections. Now, there were a couple of breakthrough infections in people who had been on PrEP and who'd stopped PrEP. And you're probably all 
keep hearing about these cases of somebody who had been on PrEP said, I didn't need it anymore, or my insurance changed, or whatever else. And so that is a real issue that we need to grapple with is persistence on PrEP. It's not enough just to start people on PrEP, but to help them to take PrEP during periods um, when they're still at risk. We did a PrEP demo project in San Francisco, Miami, and Washington, D.C., and again, 557 um, predominantly men who have sex with men, but some transgender women. 51% had sexually transmitted infections on follow-up, and there were two breakthrough infections, but both of them had stopped PrEP at an earlier period of time. There have, however, been some cases of PrEP that have been reported in people who appear to have been highly adherent to their PrEP. So there were two cases in people who were on a tenofovir-only regimen, and they were being treated for hepatitis B, appeared to be highly um, adherent to their uh, tenofovir for hepatitis B, who became infected. There was a case reported at CROI 2016 from Canada of a man who has sex with men who was, appeared to be highly adherent to his tenofovir FTC regimen, um, but he was infected with a multi-drug resistant um, virus. And then at this most recent CROI from Amsterdam, there was a case of a person who appeared to be very highly adherent to tenofovir FTC who was infected with wild-type virus. And we're hearing now some more inklings of these kinds of case reports. This one case is someone who's quite interesting because, and I actually had a slide that I took out because of concerns about time, but. He was someone who was very highly sexually active. The person from uh, the Amsterdam cohort had been uh, had uh, 40 to 70 partners a month. Um, a third to a two thirds of the days per month was having condomless anal sex, um, and was being seen on a monthly basis and had blood taken, but then also had. Um, a dried blood spot taken at month six and months eight, where you could look at cumulative adherence to PrEP. And it looked like the, the drug levels were quite adherent at six and eight months. At eight months, he came in, had uh, a fever and symptoms of urethritis was, uh, his viral load was negative, um, but he had a, he had a, a positive rapid test um, antigen antibody, and it looked like maybe he was uh, seroconverting wasn't quite clear, so they stopped everything. And the reason I want to bring this up, and we'll come back to this, is he might have been better served to have been just intensified and put on treatment. So they stopped everything for three weeks, and then uh, he seroconverted and, and bumped his viral load and then needed to be treated. And it, they weren't really quite clear what was going on, which is why they, they stopped everything. But again, it's something that perhaps we can talk about in the, um, in the question and answer session is about, like, what do you do when you're if somebody comes in who you already think might be infected, what do you do and what do you do if you think that they might seroconvert while on treatment? So these are data from two studies. The, the lines, the, the placebo line and the tenofovir um, diphosphate, uh, which is the intracellular level of tenofovir, come from IPREX. And so obviously in the placebo arm, regardless, they, they, none of them had uh, tenofovir present. This is what the incidence was like. It was, the incidence was what the incidence was. And as people were more adherent, the incidence went down. And then superimposed on this, and again, it doesn't show up well on here, but hopefully if you have the slides on your syllabus, you can see it. Um, we did a study called STRAND in which uh, people were given, low-risk people were given two four or seven doses of tenofovir 
FTC a, um, a week to see what levels did they accumulate intracellularly. And from that, you can see that if they took two pills a week, they came out here in terms of their intracellular levels, four doses a week here, and seven doses a week here. And based on that, you could estimate then what was the efficacy if you took the equivalent of two doses a week, four doses a week, or seven doses a week. So this is where those data come from that say that four doses a week of tenofovir, uh, tenofovir-based regimen or tenofovir FTC in men who have sex with men is about equivalent in efficacy to, to taking a daily pill because the estimated efficacy is 96% or 99% if it's four doses a week or, or seven doses a week, whereas it's only 76% if you're taking two doses a week. So that's, I think, that leads me to tell men who I'm giving uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis to, to say, you should take this on a daily basis, but if you miss a pill every now and then, it's not a big deal. The same is probably not true for women, and we'll get into that in just a moment. What Ipergay did was they said, well, there's some data from non-human primates that says that if you just take, if you just give the drug right before and right after sex, maybe that's enough. And if people aren't having sex all the time, then why do they have to take it on a daily basis? Why can't they just take it a little bit before and a little bit after sex? And so what they did was they said, here's what you do. You take two pills at the same time, two to 24 hours before sex. You see the happy faces. That's presumably the, the good sex. And then um, you get a dose uh, 24 hours after that first episode of sex. And if you have multiple episodes of sex, you just keep taking a dose um, afterwards until you've taken one a day for two days afterwards. So if you had just one episode of sex, you're going to take four pills, two before and two after. Um, and then they said, what happens uh, in terms of efficacy? And what they found was that in, a, in the placebo-controlled portion of this study, there was an 86% reduction in new infections, taking it pericoidally. And when they did an open label where people knew that they were actually getting tenofovir FTC, they weren't getting a placebo, there was an even lower rate of infection, and it was a 97% relative reduction in new infection. So that looked great, and that looks like, why wouldn't you then just give it around the time of sex? And my concerns are a couplefold. One is that these were fairly sexually active men who, on average, were taking four pills, 18 pills a month, or about a little more than four a week. So that's the same thing as like taking a daily pill. So if you're having sex on average once a week, you're going to be taking four pills in that week, and that may be the equivalent of taking a daily pill. What we don't really know is if people are having sex much less frequently, how well do they do taking the pills two to 24 hours before and then once a day afterwards? And then the other thing that gives us some pause is how well, are, how well do people plan for sex? And so we asked 1,000 men, um, was your last anal sex episode planned? And about half said yes, and about half said no. And then we said, well, how much before the sex was it planned? And um, it was, for the most part, minutes to hours before, right? So it all, I guess, depends on what you call planning. Um, but it might not have been quite enough time to actually get the doses in ahead of time. And there's some other data that have been published as well. In, this one is in 3,200 men about, uh, again, a little less than half said that they'd had unplanned condomless anal sex in the last three months. So for those people, trying to figure out 
taking it before and after is going to be difficult. Then there's a study, this is not what it's really called, I call it the Hope Eternal, Springs Eternal Study, um, in which they asked 92 HIV negative men who have sex with men, okay, for the next 30 days, we want you to tell us, tomorrow, are you going to have sex with a casual partner? And what they found was that men were really good at figuring out when there was no chance they were going to have sex, but they often thought that they would have sex and they didn't. And so what they, these investigators recommended was that you can skip your daily dose only if there's a 0% chance you'll have sex tomorrow because people were not very good at figuring out when they were going to have sex. But where I do think that intermittent prep is really potentially quite important is in vacation sex or what, um, it, what I call malaria prophylaxis 2.0. <laughs> Which is that, um, you know, I've had patients come to me and say, you know, Doc, I, I work really hard and I don't get out much. But when I go on vacation, I really go on vacation. <laughs> and so I think we need to be asking pr our patients proactively, do you anticipate going on vacation or having some episode, and it could be any of a variety of things personally, that might put you at risk during a limited period of time? And then we want to give those men prep for that period of time. And in this case, in uh, over 7,000 uh, men who have sex with men, 26% reported condomless anal sex with new partners while they were on vacation. So I think that that's an important thing for us to pay attention to. So if we turn now to the question about what's going on with women, we know that in a number of these studies, women were not taking the pills or were not using the gel, and there were a variety of reasons for that. But the question is, is there also some biological factor that's going on that may make PrEP less effective in those women? And last summer at the um, International AIDS Society uh, Conference, data were presented from the Caprisa 004 study, which was a study of tenofovir gel, in which they, they looked at women who, they had gotten a swab at the time of entry into the study, and they looked at Nugent scores, which is sort of a clinical way of determining whether or not women had vaginal dysbiosis or, um, or bacterial vaginosis. And sorry, these seem to proceed by themselves. And in a healthy vagina, the pH is low and there's a lactobacillus predominance. And when there's microbial dysbiosis with these other bacteria that are more prevalent, there's a higher pH there are inflammatory cytokines. There may be breakdown in the usual mucosal protective factors. And so the issue is, were those women, did, did PrEP work less well? Did the tenofovir gel work less well in those women? And in fact, what they found is that in the women who had a lactobacillus dominant um, vaginal microbiome, that there was a 61% reduction in new infections in women who, you, who got tenofovir versus placebo. But in the women where there was not a lactobacillus predominant um, uh, microbiota, in which there was this vaginal dysbiosis, they found that, in fact, there was no significant protective effect. And what they found, actually, in, in digging deeper was that the, uh, in the lactobacillus predominant group, they had plenty of tenofovir in the vaginal secretions, but in the lactobacillus not, when lactobacillus was not prevalent, when there was this dysbiosis, there were much lower levels of tenofovir. And so Sharon Hillier at Croy this year presented data from a study that she had done in 41 healthy HIV-negative women 
who were given either tenofovir gel or film every day for seven days. And what they did is they took a baseline vaginal swab, and that not only did they do a Nugent score, this sort of clinical assessment of vaginal dysbiosis, but they also did PCR on them. And then they, they brought the women in at day seven. They'd been using the, the gel or the film daily, and they took a sample of vaginal fluid and um, plasma right before the last dose. They gave them the last dose, and then they took the... They, took not only vaginal fluid and plasma, but also biopsy specimens to see what the tissue levels of tenofovir were after the last dose. They had a trough dose right before the last dose and a peak dose right after the last dose. And what they found was that the women with vaginal dysbiosis at baseline had lower levels of tenofovir in their vaginal fluid, their cervical tissue, and their plasma, and that the women who had lactobacillus predominant um, vaginal microbiome had um, higher levels of tenofovir in these fluids and in this tissue. And so it confirmed these results that suggested that maybe with topical tenofovir-based regimens, vaginal dysbiosis does make a difference and that there's something about that vaginal um, environment in which it lowers the tenofovir levels and it may be that that, uh, that is a reason for lower levels of efficacy. So then the question was, well, what about if you're taking it orally? Do you have the same problem? And so also presented at CROI this year were data from Renee Heffron from the Partners PrEP study in which they looked at the women who were on PrEP. They were either on a tenofovir FTC or tenofovir alone, and they compared them with the placebo group. And what they had done was they had taken, a, again, a baseline swab with a Nugent score to determine whether or not they had um, bacterial vaginosis or not, and they looked at was the efficacy different in those women who had bacterial vaginosis versus those that didn't. And what they found was that the efficacy was the same essentially whether they had a normal Nugent score or a high Nugent score which was indicative of bacterial vaginosis. So they found that PrEP was protective regardless for these women when it was being given orally and that there was no interaction of this abnormal vaginal microbiota and PrEP efficacy, and their conclusions were that it's reassuring that the delivery of oral PrEP to women does not need to be contingent on first doing BV testing at baseline, and that it may be because you've got a different metabolic pathway when you're being given the, the PrEP, the tenofovir-based regimen orally versus um, topically. And so they felt that the real issue here is to get PrEP out to women in a non- placebo-controlled way when women know that this is actually potentially effective and to, to find ways that, to, to understand more about why women might want to use or not want to use PrEP, but to be sure that those who want to use it can use it and be highly adherent. There are, though, some suggestions that you need higher, that tenofovir concentrates at about a tenfold lower concentration in vaginal tissue than rectal tissue. And so it's not really clear how long before you are going to potentially be exposed to PrEP that you need to start taking tenofovir FTC. But these are the best data that we have at this point. Um, so these are some data from uh, a study uh, in, uh, in Denver, actually, uh, in which people were given daily tenofovir and they were being uh, followed to see what was the level of tenofovir in their, 
in their PBMCs intracellularly. And after seven doses, 89% of them achieved an EC90 level. So the level that was associated with 90% protection in IPREX, 89% of the population got to that level at seven days. And by 13 days, 98% were there. And that is partly what has led to the recommendation that if men are going to be on PrEP, they should start it about a week before they're going to potentially be exposed. So if you're, if you're talking to your patients about, oh, you're going on vacation, start the pills about a week before you're getting ready to go on vacation. Um, and then the recommendation from CDC is that you take it for 28 days afterwards, because again, the question is, how long do you need the tenofovir to be present if somebody's been exposed? And so they're using the, the data from PrEP, from post-exposure prophylaxis from PEP. We don't really know, but that's the, that's the recommendation from CDC. For women, we really don't know what the answer is, and there's a lot of controversy. Can women get away with seven days before, or because it concentrates at lower levels in vaginal tissue, do they need more PrEP before they're going to be protected? And so right now, the CDC recommends three weeks of PrEP before women should consider themselves to be fully protected, and that women need to take the pills six or seven days a week to achieve maximal protection. So unlike men where you can say, oh, so you miss a dose here or there, don't worry about it. For women, you really need to try to take it every day. Um, and that's what the recommendation is. And then the question is, what about people who inject drugs? And we only have one study, one efficacy study, in people who inject drugs. And that was the Bangkok tenofovir study. It was tenofovir alone. And it was being given um, under directly observed therapy. And if you look at that study and you look at um, the level of effectiveness over the level of adherence, you can see that to get over 80% uh, effectiveness, you had to have 97.5% adherence. So the question is, um, is it just that we don't have the same forgiveness for protection when you're, when you're being exposed parenterally versus when you're being exposed mucosally? And in fact, at Croy this year, um, uh, Garcia Lerma um, Gerardo presented data that showed that of 11 breakthrough infections in that study, five of those individuals appeared to have been taking PrEP on a daily basis. Um, so it does appear that the, the threshold um, for protection may be higher, your, your need may be higher for people who are being exposed parenterally. And what we don't know is, is that because of the, the route of exposure or is it because it was tenofovir alone? This was a study that was done before the tenofovir FTC studies were being done. So is it that you really need the two drugs or is it that you're being exposed parenterally? We, we do believe that PrEP works against um, injection exposures, but the other thing that we can all do to help people who are uh, injecting is to get them to uh, syringe access programs as well and to do other kinds of harm reduction processes. So to summarize this component of, the, of the, the talk, PrEP is highly effective in MSM populations. Forgive, there's forgiveness in rectal tissue. We don't really know what to do if people are having le uh, sex less than on a weekly basis, but we should be asking them about vacation sex. It's highly effective if used in women, but you need to take it at least six days a week. And it appears to be effective in injection drug use, but remember that people also may be exposed um, parenterally. So in terms of uh, couples, 
how do you advise a monogamous HIV serodifferent couple about um, condom use? One is that you don't need condoms if the positive partner is fully virally suppressed. Two is if there's no need for condoms if the HIV negative partner is on PrEP. The third is that you both, both viral suppression and PrEP are needed before stopping condoms. And the fourth is that condoms are more effective than um, either antiretroviral treatment or PrEP. So go ahead and vote. You know, every now and then, I think you might like to hear something from us. Nice and easy. Okay. So about half of you are saying that you need both, and um, a quarter are saying that if the positive partner is fully virally suppressed, you're okay. And that comes from the HPTN052 study that showed a 93% reduction in new infections if the, the infections were linked. But remember that in all of the studies that we have seen, about a third to a quarter of the cases of people who are infected in a serodiscordant couple are getting infected from outside of the partnership. So obviously, the positive, if the part, positive partner's suppressed, if the negative partner's still having other partners, then they're not gonna be protected. It also appears that you need to have at least 90 days and maybe as much as six months worth of viral suppression before you're really ready to be, uh, before you'll be truly virally suppressed. So the, the eight cases that occurred, the eight breakthrough in case, cases in 052 that occurred, um, four of them were within 90 days of starting treatment, and the other four were um, with viral suppression, uh, were, were when the vir viral suppression had failed. And the other thing that we've got to remember is that viral suppression um, may be kind of in the eyes of the beholder. So it's one thing when you've got a stable serodiscordant couple where the positive partner is fully virally suppressed and has been over a long period of time. It's another thing when you're hooking up with someone who's, you don't really know who says, I'm virally suppressed, because in this cohort of 14,000 patients, 90% um, of whom prescribed antiretrovirals, half of them had at least one viral load that was over 1,500. So we all know that we've got a number of patients who are sometimes virally suppressed and other times not virally suppressed. So if somebody comes to you, if a negative partner comes to you and says, well, I've got, I've got this partner, but he tells me he's virally suppressed, it's really, you, you need to probe a little bit more about for what period of time has he been, and has he been stably virally suppressed. And these were data from um, the partners prep study in which HIV negative uh, individuals were given PrEP for the first six months just while their partner was going on treatment. And if they started treatment right away, then the, the people stopped PrEP at six months. If the par positive partner waited to go on to antiretroviral treatment, then the negative partner could stay on PrEP as long as, um, until the positive partner had been on for six months. And when that happened, they saw a 95% reduction in diagnoses in the negative person. So it looks like if you can cover the, the negative partner for six months, then you substantially reduce the risk of acquisition uh, in, the, in the uninfected partner. The other thing just to remember is that condoms are not 100% effective, and it's probably because they're not used very, they're not used all the time, and they're not used throughout sex. And so these studies suggest that condom effectiveness is like 70 to plus percent so 
I would never tell someone just use condoms because they're more effective than antiretroviral treatment or pre-exposure prophylaxis because I don't think that that's true because condoms are not always used consistently. So I'm, gonna, I'm running a little bit behind, so I'm going to run through this pretty quickly. Use a fourth-gen test when somebody comes in, and if they have symptoms, don't just start them on PrEP. Either start them on a, a three-drug regimen and then you can back off if it turns out that they're not infected. But don't start them just on a two-drug prep regimen on uh, tenofovir FTC because it will be inadequate and they will develop resistance if they're truly infected. So ask for any signs or symptoms of uh, acute infection. You've got to get a, a baseline creatinine, hepatitis B, just so that you can monitor them if they go off of the tenofovir and they're uh, chronically infected. STI and pregnancy screening. And then counsel them about startup syndromes because um, GI symptoms are probably the most common symptom that's reported, and if you tell people that they, they just stay on it and within a couple of weeks those symptoms should go away, then people are going to be more likely to stay on PrEP. And then every three months you're getting an HIV test, STI screening, and pregnancy screening. Chasing after creatinines more than like at, at the three-month period and then every six months thereafter is probably not effective. There are a number of studies that say that if you have a lower GFR to start with, or if you're older, you may need more closer follow-up of your renal monitoring. But you don't see the same kind of renal toxicity in the HIV-negative population that we see in the positive population. Um, so, and if you screen people, if you keep chasing after creatinines, if you get more um, frequent renal monitoring, it doesn't seem to help. So every three months is no better than every six months from studies. Bone loss also, you see some small amount of bone loss in the first uh, period of time while people are on PrEP. It's about a 1% to most 2% drop in, in um, bone loss. It comes back up to baseline when people come off of PrEP. And that's true for the under 25 as well as the over 25-year-old group. And data from 16 to 17-year-olds looks like it's probably similar, although tenofovir uh, based PrEP is not yet recommended, or it's not, there's no licensed indication for the under 18 group, but hopefully that will come soon. STIs don't seem to interfere with PrEP effectiveness in populations, so despite these high levels of STIs, we've not seen a reduction in PrEP effectiveness. So again, just to summarize, renal issues are rare in the negative population. Um, and don't need very close follow-up unless you've got an older population or ones that are already marginal in terms of their creatinine clearance. Bone mineral density decreases are relatively small. STIs don't seem to interfere with PrEP effectiveness, but Jeff Klausner is going to be talking about our problem with STIs, and that's a reason for really promoting condom use and very close screening and treatment of STIs. And then resistance is uncommon unless you start PrEP while somebody's already infected. And so to end, I just want to say how well are we doing? Um, the, the CDC is anticipating that 1.2 million people could be eligible for PrEP in the United States. Data from that we know is an underestimate, but that come from pharmacy level data suggests that we're probably at 10% of where we need to be. We're not getting younger people, so in men and women you can see that a very small proportion are youth. And we have, we're not addressing the racial and ethnic disparities that I described early on. We're not getting PrEP in the levels that it needs to be for African Americans and Latinos. And 
part of the reason is us. We are part of the problem. Um, a number of providers say, oh, I'll only give PrEP to serodiscordant couples. But we just talked about that's not the group that need PrEP. What, the people who need PrEP are those who have multiple partners who may not be using condoms consistently. There are a number of different um, resources available for PrEP. I suggest you go to the Project Inform website. They have a ton of information, including information about how you help your patients navigate to get uh, assistance for both coverage of PrEP and for their lab results. And Please Prep Me just came online a couple of weeks ago. It's got GPS locating. I actually just put in the, the uh, zip code here. There are 15 groups or providers in, the, in a five-mile radius of our spot right now um, that provide PrEP. And if you, you, can, you can add more providers. So if you're a PrEP provider and you're not currently listed, you can get your, you just fill out a little form on the Please Prep Me website and you can get yourself added. And so I will stop there and uh, take questions. Great, thank you. PrepLA.com, and you can, it's a prep kit that's got a lot of resources about prep here. Great. Covered, yeah, and, and most health plans do cover PrEP. Hi, I'm Leo Moore, Associate Medical Director for the Division of HIV and STD Programs here in LA County. Just wanted to echo what he was saying, getprepla.com right. is the website. Um, and also on our DHSP website, it's um, ph.lacounty backslash DHSP. All of the components of the action kit are there. We um, did public health detailing where we sent out health representatives to some of the clinics here in LA County. So some of your clinics might have been detailed. Um, and so we offered PrEP frequently asked questions, PEP frequently asked questions, and a lot of information about where patients can get PrEP in LA County for low to no cost. That's really helpful. And you guys have been definitely ahead of the curve and you've got some really nice social media um, uh, as well that you've been you've been pushing prep out into the community because it's really about getting the users to be aware of it and then also getting information to the providers so that providers can provide it as easily as possible. Um, I have a few written questions here. How long after the last exposure should a patient remain on prep? And so um, CDC recommends 28 days. We don't really know if that's what's needed. That's probably what's safest because that's kind of like a post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, the levels do decline over a, a period of a week after you've stopped PrEP. So, um, you know, it's unlikely necessarily that, that virus is going to be present for a month afterwards and that you really need it for the full 28 days, but that's the current recommendation. Um, okay, so then the question is about every three-month screening for STDs, and do you go ahead and give PrEP even if they don't come in for their STD screens? So this is a really challenging question. One of the things is there's some modeling data that suggests that even though we, we do believe that maybe STD, STDs were rising before PrEP became available. We do think though that PrEP probably is increasing the rate of STIs in some populations. There are some modeling data that suggests that if we screen people every three months, we could actually reduce the number of STIs because so, much, so many STIs, particularly in men who have sex with men are asymptomatic rectal infections. And if you are screening re very regularly and then treating these asymptomatic 
infections, you could drive down incidence. That's theoretical at this point. The question is, if you get patients who aren't coming in for the STI screening every three months, should you still give PrEP? My personal belief is you should. It's probably more important to get them the PrEP. But I would encourage them to come in for the STI screening. The thing I'm concerned about is people starting and stopping PrEP on their own without the HIV testing. So I think the, S the HIV testing is really critical. And I do tell patients, if you're going to stop PrEP for a period of time, come back in for another test before you start up again. Because again, people aren't always very good at figuring out which partners are at risk and which ones aren't. And um, if they start again and they're already infected, then they're going to become resistant. Um, So then the question is about um, use for, of PrEP in other countries where there may be um, more resistance and TAMs. Um, you know, I think that um, the challenge is that right now, I didn't get into talking about new agents that can be used for PrEP. That you heard about the cabotegravir study. One of the questions that I don't see here, but that often comes up is, what do you do if somebody's got some renal insufficiency and they need to be on PrEP? Do you give them TAF, um, FTC? We don't know if that works. There is a study that's looking at whether or not it's equally effective or not. Um, and so I think we don't really know yet whether or not that works. And we, we won't know that yet. There are other agents that are going to be being tested, we will have more to choose from in the future, but right now it's really just tenofovir FTC. And with that, I'm, I've got to end, but um, I will um, be happy to take questions in the back. Thank you.